As a pilot, the profession brings one above the rest as a matter of course. As a military pilot, flying brings one into danger as a matter of duty. As a man, Hans Ulrich Rudel rose above all others, certainly in the context of World War II and within the German military. Flying over 2,000 missions in the Stuka dive bomber and bearing the highest decoration of any soldier, Rudel survived over 30 crashes and was able to take out over 800 enemy vehicles, hundreds of tanks, and even a battleship. After the war, he was the top candidate for the German Reich Party and spent much of his time consulting with presidents of South American nations as a military advisor. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time dealing. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick, and I'm joined today by Hans and Adam. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing well, thank you. And I have two Bitcoins uh, that were kind enough to donate uh, with the wallet, starting with the characters 198A, and the second one was from the wallet, starting with characters 38 P2. Thank you very much. And as always, if anybody would like a copy of Exit Strategy, if they have donated, you get a free copy. Just email myth20c at tutanota.com. Back to you, Nick. Uh, yeah, you have to forgive me. I've been a bit sick. Um, just been kind of holed up watching horror movies. Uh, but I think I'm recovering. I saw it. Did you, have you guys seen that movie, It Follows? I have not. Hans? No. Uh, actually, yeah, I have. That's the one with like the killer uh, AIDS virus. It's not really a killer AIDS virus. It's like a demon. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> yeah, it's it follows, right? It, it's, a, it's bound up in some kind of sexual idea. Um, it's, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I've been enjoying it. A lot of uh, Black Pilled. That's a channel on YouTube. And Nick, you probably should check it out because you're a film guy. Uh, but he, he used to work in actually uh, film production uh, somewhat professionally. And his analysis, his film critiques from kind of the perspective of our politics is actually quite good. And I think he might have been reviewing something like that recently. But it, typically he'll just tear apart the, the leftist narrative and or the progressive narrative, I should say, in most of major Hollywood films. He did one on The Joker, I think. Um, for example, but I'd recommend that channel for anybody who's into film. I watch more of that than I actually do of real film, to be honest. Uh, it's hard, especially with if you like horror movies. I mean, it's that time of year. If you're into horror movies, you're probably watching a bunch of them. But it's pretty hard to find something these days that comes out. Uh, well, that isn't good. corrupted, and that's kind of his point, and that's kind of why I haven't been able to bring myself to go to the theater. And I, I used to enjoy movies quite a bit. 
back uh, back when they weren't so obviously uh, heavy-handed. I mean, he did one on falling down, for example, and even there, like he's able to find stuff that you know they're kind of trying to program us with. And a lot of us, a lot of people on our side are always holding that movie up as kind of like representative of the plight of the dead white male, uh, the North American version at least. But, um, you know, the point is that basically it's just getting worse and worse and more obvious, uh, and which obviously, or not obviously, but perhaps makes it uh, worse because it's so obvious. Because, you know, when things are subtle, at least if you're an intelligent person, you can kind of have fun with decrypting some of it. But, you know, if they're just literally showing us the uh, the multiracial friendship commercial uh, on on big screen for two hours, it's like, what, what's the point? You know, that this is you're, you're you're unmasking yourself. You're going behind the curtain too much. It's not interesting anymore. You know, the other thing before we get into it, the other thing I did watch uh, that is not horror that I wanted to mention, because if anyone is interested in us doing a program on the subject, I would be interested to do it. There was a mini series that came out maybe six or seven years ago or something uh, called Carlos, which is about Carlos the Jackal. And it's actually quite good. Um, he, he, he had an interesting life. And there, that whole period of 70s uh, you know, Marxist-Leninist terrorism on behalf, you know, adjunct or on behalf of the PLO or PFLP or what have you, it's an interesting story, especially when you get into the possibilities, because he actually, one of the killings he was accused of, he, he said was actually Mossad doing it. So there's there's something there to look at from, I guess you might maybe say a right-wing perspective, or at least a uh, anti-Zionist perspective, generally speaking. So, I don't know. If anyone's interested, uh, Carlos, let, let us know. So, today's topic is... The Stuka. The infamous dive bomber from Nazi Germany. And my understanding was you wanted to talk about the the most successful and most actually most uh, highly decorated officer of the Wehrmacht overall from the entire yeah, war. He, who was he was a, a god ace. among men from a time in which it was still possible to see gods drape themselves in the flesh of men and walk the earth. That would be Hans Ulrich Rudel. So what caught your attention about him? Well, uh, that was the other thing I was doing in my convalescence. <laughs> I was reading his, mem- his memoirs in between watching trashy horror You know, it's, it's, funny, it's funny to hear about all these uh, epic uh, movie scripts and uh, novels that are written from a hospital bed, but perhaps you can turn some of that into, into a, a positive. Well, man, that's, that's really what I like. It kind of all comes back around here because as far as men from the 20th century who absolutely deserve some kind of cinematic treatment of their lives. Uh, he was, he's absolutely at the top of the list. I mean, his life, it's really unbelievable what he was able to do. I mean, it, I'm reading through his, his memoirs. I mean, the stuff it, it has just very little effort would need to be taken to turn that into a screenplay. I mean, it's, uh, it's again, you know, history truth is often more fantastical than fiction. So he was uh, he was a pilot, and he served uh, on pretty much uh, all fronts. It would seem he did a lot on the eastern. No, ex- front. exclusively the eastern. Oh, front. just there. Okay. Um, yeah, which kind of comes up. Maybe we'll get to it. Maybe I'll forget to get to it. But that that is 
a point that does come up um, after the fall and his eventual surrender to the American occupation forces. Um, at one point, uh, an officer comments on his uh, uh, gold oak leaf, Iron Cross, and he says something to the effect of, oh, how many lives uh, did that cost? An American officer. And to which he replies, well, a, a lot of Bolshevik lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. And by a lot of Bolshevik lives, let's actually let's just run the numbers to start with. So Rudel flew, I believe, somewhere around. Okay, yeah, it was uh, he he flew two thousand five hundred and thirty sorties, which is a world record. Okay, uh, ground targets were uh, two thousand destroyed. So some five hundred tanks, seventy uh, some boats, a Soviet battleship. Two cruisers, a destroyer, uh, 150 heavy guns, four trains, and 800 other vehicles. And he achieved also nine air victories, which uh, if is impressive. I mean, G- given that type of airplane, it is. Yeah. Given the aircraft, to be fair, I guess you also the Russian what? fighter, which you'll forgive me, I don't remember the name of that thing. Uh, this was before that they were getting any. Uh, American Mustangs or anything well, they're, like that. They're, they had the Yak. Uh, there was yeah, a... that's yeah, yeah, right, yeah. They they were unimpressive aircrafts, uh, but yeah. still, the Stuka is a very slow, very slow aircraft. Well, it, it was designed. Was it, was a, it was a twin seater, and so it was designed to go in initially, at least, unescorted. And the guy behind the pilot, who was facing the tail, I believe, uh, with the gun in front of him, his job was basically to shoot, sort of like how the. B-17s from the U.S. Air Force would have gunners on the bomber uh, to shoot at attacking aircraft. Um, the gunner's job was basically just to to keep off the the flies from attacking the meat of the the bomb delivery device of the Stuka, and he would uh, he would shoot at them. But once once fighters uh, once Germany basically lost air air supremacy in Europe, Stukas were extremely vulnerable because uh, they they just they couldn't. They couldn't fight out against maneuverable fighter jets, or not jets, uh, fighter planes. It was very necessary on the Western Front to have a fighter escort squadron, too. Mm -hmm. Especially during the Battle of Britain. It was important to have the Messerschmitts. uh, Yeah, the Stuka, you're quite right. The Stuka was an easy, easy target by the end. But very impressive uh, aircraft. Until yeah, the very end, though by the end the Stuka was replaced. Um, do you know not, much about not the, very effectively? I mean, so the the, the most I, I don't know that much about the exact successor, uh, but I do know that the Me two six two, the Messerschmitt uh, jet jet airplane, was the first in the world, uh, which appeared in the last year or so of the war. Uh, was initially designed to be somewhat like the Stuka. It was going to be a bomber, and they had to argue with Hitler about this basically, but they eventually convinced him to make it a fighter. But the ideology at the time was that, uh, to make a fighter is to be defensive and to make a bomber is offensive. And so they had these kind of light, agile bomber, kind of the warrior spirit. It's, it's very infused with ideology. There was, um, uh, for good or for worse, a, a certain lack of pragmatism in, German aircraft design during most of the war. They got a little bit more desperate, obviously, later on. But uh, that was that was one of the, the more famous successors uh, to the Stuka because obviously it can go really fast. It can go high. 
with the jet engine and it could outrun anything. And so, you know, the idea was to have that basically doing bombing raids. But I mean, realistically, using such a small airplane to hit really small numbers of targets, um, yeah, it's useful, but compared to what the Allies were doing to Germany at the time, I mean, they were they're sending in like literal like completely filled the sky with waves of B-17s and B-29s, uh, super fortresses. Those are more in Asia, uh, to be honest, but it was B-17s mostly in Europe that were just going in these giant waves, and they, they called them like box formations. They would have not only across the sky, but vertically aligned as well, so that when they shot up the flak, it might hit the wrong, uh, wrong plane. Germany could not produce to this level, not even close, and so their, their best... Their best offense was like a good defense, just keep these things away from us. So their ability to bomb was was so limited that these little things that they were using on the Eastern Front were great uh, initially when they were going in to surprise the the Soviets. That's why they got, they knocked out, I think, 2,000 planes in the first week or something uh, doing doing Stuka-type raids while the Soviets were still on the ground. But, you know, once once the Soviet war machine got rolling, um, you know, they, they, they were just churning out thousands upon thousands of, of fighter planes and the Stukas, you know, couldn't, couldn't keep up. I think they were, they were still going pretty strong until about Kursk. That was the turning point for the Stuka. After that, it, it, it was just, they couldn't maintain them in the sky. They were just knocked out. Well, yeah, his, he was flying by the end of the war, uh, the FW-190, so Falk uh, Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, w- but the ground attack variant of that. Yeah. So with. Do you want to talk about how that how things. the dive bombing worked? I mean, it was pretty. pretty well, before stuff. let me uh, let me we got I got hung up on his air victories, and I also wanted to mention he he also flew uh, six rescue missions behind enemy lines, hmm. which were in his memoirs. He gets into the the full story of one of those, which is really spectacular. I mean, he crashes and tries to save uh, two other pilots. And ends up having to, you know, they have to flee the the Soviets across a frozen river. He gets shot in the shoulder and is running around barefoot in the winter in Russia to escape and like shreds his feet to the point where when he returns and demands to be let back because this was the common thing. He keeps going to the hospital and basically like has to escape the hospital to get back to flying missions. And he was wearing these like fur boots because his feet were so uh, just torn up. And uh, th- that story, in of itself, is, is material for some kind of film. I mean, it's it's unreal what he was. I mean, he was the the man was a was a very serious athlete. He was uh, that was his whole thing. I mean, he didn't he didn't drink. In fact, what he drank was milk, like everyone would be drinking alcohol, and he would be drinking milk. He was a slow learner, though. That that's part of what makes his story so interesting because he was he was the best, but. It took him a while to be given the chance to prove that because he couldn't get the hang of the dive bombing at first. Uh, couldn't get the hang of the machine. Well, and you, in general, the he designers would... couldn't even do it. I mean, they barely got out of the initial dive when they were demonstrating the aircraft. It was, um, I mean, they literally, like, this is the only airplane, I think, in dive bombing airplane history, which doesn't really happen anymore because, you know, guided guided bombs and missiles and things like that. But back in the day, you really did have to push the limits as a pilot. And it was, I was trying to look up uh, attrition rates of, of pilots, but I think uh, Germany 
this is a real rough number, but from what I could tell, they lost about uh, five to ten percent of their their pilots. Um, well, the yeah, war. his his whole story is on the Eastern Front is just watching all of his friends die. Yeah, it, it's incredible. He did two thousand. I mean, like you talk about pushing the luck. But when they were, when they were first doing this, um, they um, they they had to kind of sell the plane. And this is the only plane in all of the airplanes out there at the time, at least, that could actually go vertical. Like part of the the way the dive bombing works for the Stuka was it would have to do a like a a flip, like it would do an inverted flip, and then it would literally just like fall down, and then the pilot would have to position a sight uh, in his cockpit, and when if there were there were sensors on board that kind of uh, very primitive, obviously not not really electronic, but just kind of like you know like weights and measures and inertia guided things like that. It would kind of give him an idea, you know, when to like hit the trigger to drop the bomb. And then when he did that, these these air air brakes would kick in automatically, and they were going so fast and they were turning over at, at such a short angle that the for, the g forces uh, were beyond what most pilots could handle. And it was very common for most of these pilots to actually black out momentarily. Yeah, it was designed, the dive brakes were designed with that in mind, that, yeah. a, that a blackout was to be expected. So that he wouldn't smash into the ground. So basically the I mean, plane would self-correct. Like, there's few things that I've ever read about that are more metal than this. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> taking this machine and driving it straight down with... Multiple ton ordnance. Well, I don't know, ton it'd be because yeah, two thousand like, pounders. Yeah, about a thousand. Yeah, pounds, two, something two, like that. Well, some of them are two thousand pounders. Yeah, okay. But you're you're driving down with this ordnance at you know just a straight you know straight angle right into it and you know you're flying through flak and enemy fire uh, and probably blacking. You you may not wake up conscious and alive. You know, but <laughs> and, li- and listening and listening to your own uh, air raid horns or whatever those things were called. Uh, up close as opposed to the guys on the ground who are supposed to be scared by it. You're probably scared by that crap just listening to the, your impending doom as the, the sirens, you know, the, whatever that noise was. It was an infamous Yeah, but you can imagine, was uh, as best you can imagine, being a German soldier on the Eastern Front in the Second War, uh, you could imagine what that sound would at least feel like to you. It's, you know, yeah. you have... Well, it's probably like so the guys the, in the Afghanistan when they call in the A-10 and then you strike. you hear that noise. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so he um, yeah, was also shot down, by the way. Yeah. He, he was shot down or crashed. He had to do crash landings 32 times. Again, okay. just statistically, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, what are the odds, but that's pretty good, you know, to survive all that is what my point is. Well, it's unreal. That's why eventually he was he was decorated with a decoration that did not exist. Like they had to create a new decoration for him. Yeah, I was reading this, and it's like the the oak leaf of the the knight's cross with the diamonds. I'm like, they kept well, adding that, that on was a decoration that existed, but it was the golden oak leaves that was not given. That was okay. the one that they created for him. It was the the knight's cross of iron with the golden oak leaves and swords and diamonds. I wonder if his family silver was given out to others. I wonder Making if you him, guys could. <laughs> <clears throat> maybe talk about what his day-to-day would have been like at sort of the height of his career what you know during that time in the war what what, what would his life have been like and how did he kind of slowly become um the legend that he is now he would uh spend all of his time like i said he's a serious athlete very serious skier 
because he grew up in the mountains. He was also training at a young age. He was training for Olympic decathlon. Uh, and so he, his, his life was sport. The only other thing he was interested in doing was to, to fly, but he was, so while not flying sorties, which he was doing constantly, I mean, you have to be doing a lot of them to achieve 2,500. Um, but when he wasn't, he was doing, um, exercises, uh, go for long distance runs and throw discus and, um, this, this was it. I mean, he would, in between flying, he would just exercise. Hmm. The only thing I, he, I don't actually know what the, uh, Luftwaffe uh, protocols were when they're not actually in, in the air. But, uh, what I was curious about was actually what the organizational structure of the Luftwaffe was. And they had, they had a lot of acronyms that were very similar to OKW, which is like Ober Command in Wehrmacht, I think, but it was uh, OKL. So they had kind of a, a similar parallel structure. And originally it was, I think, under Goering, but that probably shifted as Goering grew more addicted to morphine and uh, chocolate cake. So who knows as the war progressed. But the, uh, the organization itself was huge. It, it actually had like one and a half or more uh, people in it. And most of those were obviously not pilots. So there's a lot of uh, ground support, a lot of people assigned to actually anti-aircraft roles. So it's a huge organization. And so for this guy to kind of get the decorations that he did, he really was pretty exceptional. I mean, he was one out of a million at the very least. So that, that's all I can say really about what their life was like. Well, and he, he was, it took him a while to be able to fly the Stuka and, and, and to be permitted to fly it. He initially uh, was assigned to reconnaissance flights, but he actually had he had some trouble with the high altitude, and eventually he got put into a reserve um, squad of, of Stuka, and then had his chance. And then once he once he sank the, uh, the Soviet battleship, uh, it was on the up for him. I mean, and he would be recalled like because again he was wounded six times. Uh, eventually, he had his leg shot off. I mean, by the end. Well, was that... Uh, yeah, we don't need to get into the details, but yeah, suffice it to say. I mean, he was flying with a prosthetic leg, with a stump. Right. You know, over over Germany, back when, when, the, when the Soviets had advanced into Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, was he still he, Stuka uh, then, or was he doing the other plane? I, by that point, yeah, it would have been the, uh, the FW 190 with the ground attack variant, uh, by the end. Yeah. Cause they basically had stopped producing the Stukas. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was constantly being, I mean, Hitler, Hitler personally tried to get him to stop flying. This is actually similar. There's a similar parallel story here with DeGrell, who we can obviously do a show on at some point is kind of the, uh, the, his, parallel on the ground in a certain sense for other reasons too that we will get into as to with respect to his post-war activities uh there are a lot of parallels between their two lives and uh hitler had tried to persuade him to uh, not return well i I have some numbers on this this is uh, the monthly percentage of total german fighter strength lost from january through june in 1944 um and it, it fluctuates. Mainly the percentages are low during the winter months because they're not flying very much. The visibility is pretty shit. But as the visibility clears up, 
you're getting into like high 50s, like you're losing half your airplanes every month. And so for Hitler to say, you know, you need to basically go on the trophy case now and not get your head blown off, not just not just your leg, it's probably uh, something to do with that. Well, no, he was, I mean, he wanted, there's speculation about this. Uh, there's a certain extent to which he was being considered for, I mean, what Hitler had said to him, I don't have the exact quote, but it's the, you, you know, you need to, to live, to be an inspiration to the, the German youth to come. But I mean, Hitler allowed him because what he had said to Hitler was that he would not uh, be able to accept the decorations if that meant that he could not return to active, active duty, you know, and his, uh, his, uh, this, this happened several times, actually it happened at least two times. And they tried, uh, also to get him into a fighter a fighter squadron at one point because there's more prestige there. There was always more prestige there. It was kind of a, a holdover yeah. from the first war. But he preferred to do what he had gotten experience doing and was not only very good at it, he was the best in the world. So I, I think it would be appropriate to give some of his accounts because as to his memoirs, on the one hand, so what's most interesting about them is just his recount of the deeds that he performed and it's kind of uh it's a very humble attitude towards it but you can just reading between the lines it's just remarkable so it's exciting in that sense uh, then there's some stuff that's interesting from a maybe you'd say a bit more of a political perspective so it's something of interest to me was just his attitude towards the war itself and i have a, a quote of his he says it is our plain duty also to the destiny which has placed us geographically in the heart of europe in which we have obeyed for centuries to be the bulwark of europe against the east whether or not europe understands or likes the role which fate has thrust upon us or whether her attitude is one of fatal indifference or even hostility does not alter by one iota our european duty now what you'll see as far as his it's bigger picture attitude. I mean, he was, I mean, the man wasn't a, you know, he was a Stuka pilot, you know, and a, and a world-class athlete. That was his vocation and a soldier above all else. I mean, he performed his duty. Now, as for what he thought about the situation, well, he saw very clearly that the enemy was um, Bolshevism to the East. And, it's his perspective after the war. We'll get in a little bit more to his post-war activities, but it's worth mentioning here that it was actually Mosley who published his book when it was first written. And I think you could safely say they were of a similar mind when it came to things like Mosley's idea of Europe a nation. And he also endorsed, for example, uh, Francis Parker Yaki's book, Imperium. And he, he saw it as a European struggle against the East. And you'll note when he's not talking about that, which he doesn't talk about at length in the book, but when he does, what he is talking about is his, ex his combat experience. He'll start noticing Americans, uh, supplies, American trucks and American tanks, though there were few Shermans, but he just, his observation of these, particularly the trucks, uh, he was talk about how he would discuss with his comrades the nature of this. Well, why would America be, be doing this? It doesn't really seem that it's in their interest. That, don't they understand? You know, this kind of thing. And I thought I found that to be very interesting because 
it, it didn't really make sense to them and nor should it. I mean, I guess they didn't quite understand American, the Americans themselves and certainly not the motivations of the American power elite. But he'd say other things like if the nations of the West could see with their own eyes the happenings of these days pregnant with destiny and realize their significance, they would very soon abandon their frivolous attitude towards Bolshevism. But he was he definitely saw it to you know, restate the point as a as a European struggle. Well, uh I don't know if many, but at least Hitler was trying to make that point to the Americans and the British when the end was becoming even clear to him, which was kind of a long thing coming for a lot of other officers in the German high command who had basically seen the, the war as lost. And there was a last ditch effort to try to reassert uh, the value of Germany with obviously the, the current command structure against the Eastern uh, Eastern onslaught. And, that didn't happen because the Brits and perhaps the Americans to some or if not complete total degree that the Brits wanted to do this, but they basically did, didn't want Germany to be powerful uh, and as a rival, frankly. And the the fear, though, was proven out by obviously what happened during the Cold War. I mean, it took 40, 45 years to resolve that. And you could you could argue that what Hitler and the Nazis were doing was... A, a very perhaps futile but very brave attempt to do what the Americans and the Brits uh, basically did, you know, for the, the subsequent years, uh, and did so somewhat successfully, perhaps with fewer lives lost. But nonetheless, the the fact that that regime was was in power uh, and you know, arguably was, was not as, as brutal as the Stalinist regime, but Stalin was still in power after the end of the war. And they basically enslaved, you know, most of Eastern Europe that wasn't Russia. Uh, and so were the Nazis, you know, warm and fuzzy people? Not really. I mean, they, they took over a lot of those same lands themselves and their occupation was probably less brutal, but it was, um, it was still a, a conquest between the West and the East and, it was very uh, prescient, if nothing else, to call war. War out. itself is neither warm nor fuzzy. I mean, of course, the of course the uh, to that point as well. He he took a position that's similar to someone like Yaki as far as the Cold War dialectic. That basically, no, we don't, we're not going to be America's bitch. They already sold out Europe. They already allied with the USSR against us. Why are we going to be the first targets in the next war? You know, because the, they're a the enemy. No, I mean, why are we going to let ourselves become that? Yeah. Why are yeah. we going? Why are we going to play into the, the hands of the American occupation government and and be the, do what do again what we were trying to do for Germany and for Europe? Do it for America? Oh, fuck that. That was the position of a lot of veterans of, uh, of the SS and, of, uh, of England too. I mean, this is something Mosley saw as well. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, was we did he was he invited? Mosley's- to like consult with the German military with the Bundeswehr after World War II, he actually was. A he led a political so, party. Surprisingly, well, yeah, he enough. was involved in the German Reich. Uh, who he was a consultant to was the Peron, as well as Pinochet, and as well as the the dude in uh, Paraguay, because he he got hooked up after the war. He was among uh, people who the Jewish American press liked to put sort of James Bond labels on. They called it the Spider. Or is I also they called as the, the rat line. 
no, where he was basically well, trying to get uh, Nazis yeah. out of Germany. The rat line was more specific, but the uh, Odessa was this nebulous international fascist uh, network that you know helped get people like uh, Mangala out and. Yeah, others who were involved in this. There's a lot of hype, but it did exist to a certain extent. There was a post-war fascist international. Uh, it did, and it did find refuge in Argentina and Chile, and to a certain extent, Paraguay. After he did, and he came back to Germany after after Perón's regime fell, and uh, some political activities. It, his main concern was for the veterans. I mean, he was much beloved by veterans. I mean, he was. He was the great man. I mean, he was the, he was the hero of the uh, of the Eastern Skies. But there was a scandal that took place too that is sort of complicated. But in the seventies, there was an issue where uh, they were having a reunion, and it was authorized to be initially. I guess it was authorized to be at at a Bundeswehr facility. Uh, it was a uh, what happened, though, then was like the initial agreement was it could be done as long as there was no political activity that took place. And then I, this it blew up into the scandal because even though it, it did get held there, it and he didn't do anything that was political. Uh, some heads rolled for this. And uh, there was another incident, too, that over like the FIFA World Cup or the German, he visited the uh, German national football team. There was a point where, back before the Reich fell, that they were cons- he was, his one position that was being considered for him was like you know s- sports minister, <laughs> because that was his thing. I mean, his it was his one passion in life was athletics, and it kind of makes you wonder to what extent in the Bundeswehr there was still people who were sympathetic, because when he eventually did die in the early eighties. It was another minor scandal that took place at his uh, funeral because there were these F4 phantoms that flew low over the funeral site, and it was denied that this had that there was any meaning to this. Oh, total coincidence! But it does make you kind of wonder. And there were also the, you know, his old comrades or you know people who respected him from from the old days who were there uh, giving uh, you know the and that was investigated, of course, by the occupation government. His, uh, to your point, though, Adam, earlier about the the war on the two fronts, he actually had this conversation with Hitler specifically. Hmm. And so he says, <clears throat> this is what he said to Hitler. In my opinion, at this moment, the war can no longer be ended victoriously on both fronts. But it is possible on one front if we can succeed in getting an armistice with the other. A rather tired smile flits across his face as he replies, It is easy for you to talk. Ever since 1943, I have tried incessantly to conclude a peace, but the Allies won't. From the outset, they have demanded unconditional surrender. My personal fate is naturally of no consequence, but every man in his right mind must see that I could not accept unconditional surrender for the German people. Even now, negotiations are pending, but I have given up all hope of their success. Therefore, we must do everything to surmount the crisis so that decisive weapons may yet bring us victory. Basically, is recognizing that at that point, it, the only way that the war could be salvaged and the East could be pushed back would have been a, would have been a secession of the conflict on the West. But, mm-hmm. of course, the British and the Americans had no interest in that. No, they're winning. 
<laughs> What's in it for them? Well, the future is what would have been in it for them. It was a political defeat for both England and America. Of course, for the people, but you know, for the establishment, for the power structure, they made out pretty well. I mean, the Brits, I guess they just sort of were allowed to come under the the the, the wing of the Americans, but the Americans basically took over Europe. So well, the, the assumption of the, the power State Department elite, and the Pentagon made out pretty great. The, the assumption of the power elite was that the wartime alliance with the USSR would be continued and you could have, you know, the great new world order effectively. Mm. That was the assumption. That is interesting that they, I mean, who, who would you say thought that? Because obviously it wasn't a unanimous opinion. Patton obviously paid the price for voicing his dissent on that one. But the, um, the, the cold war, Adam, is who thought that okay yeah the cold war started pretty damn quick i mean the, yes it did the tanks the tanks in berlin were facing yeah. off you know with each other within a few years of the end of the war yeah that's right yeah and that's why he, when he eventually did surrender he there was sort of interesting mixed reception on the one hand you had just total american pig dogs you know just, you know, and the, and the coloreds roaming around getting drunk and stuff. And it was kind of a circus show where they were, I mean, they stole everything that him and his comrades had. They even stole his prosthetic leg, you know, hopefully not. Hopefully that wasn't, you know, one of your guys' uh, grandfathers who did that. <laughs> I'll tell you some other time where my grandfather was, but no, he wasn't there. I just, well, I just mean the listeners in general. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. That uh, no, my uh, that, my grand my grandfather that, was uh, I think, d- running bombing runs over uh, Greece and then Italy. So no, mm-hmm. he wasn't uh, involved in stealing the peg leg. He was a catch twenty two. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it was just disgrace. So I can I'll read his account of that. Actually, um, it's actually pretty pretty interesting. This is his when he when he surrenders to Americans when he lands. So, As the first to come down, I now lie flopped at the end of the runway, already a soldier standing beside my cockpit pointing a revolver at me. I open the canopy, and instantly his hand is outstretched to grab my golden oak leaves. I shove him back and shut down the hood again. Presumably, this first encounter would have ended badly had not a jeep driven up with some officers who dress this fellow down and send him about his business. They come closer and see that I have a blood-drenched bandage, the results of the skirmish above the saws. They take me first to the dressing room where I'm given a fresh bandage. Nearman does not let me out of his sight and follows me like a shadow. Then I'm taken to a large partition off room in an upstairs hall, which has been uh, fitted out as a kind of officer's mess. And so he then describes, uh, oh, this one, I should actually read this too. Uh, Here I meet the rest of my colleagues who have been brought straight there. They spring to attention and greet me with the salute prescribed by the Fuhrer. On the far side of the room stands a small group of USA officers. This spontaneous salute displeases them, and they mutter to themselves. They evidently belong to a mixed fighter wing, which is stationed here with Thunderbolts and Mustangs. An interpreter comes up to me and asks if I speak English. He tells me that their commanding officer objects, above all things, to this salute. Even if I speak English, I reply, we are in Germany here and speak only German. As far as the salute is concerned, we are ordered to salute in this way, and being soldiers, we carry out our orders. Besides, we do not care whether you object to it or not. Tell your CO that we are the Immelmann wing, and the war is now over, and no one has defeated us in the air, and we do not consider ourselves prisoners. The German soldier, I point out, has not been beaten on his merits, but has simply been crushed by overwhelming masses of material. 
We have landed here because we did not wish to stay in the Soviet zone. We should also prefer not to discuss this matter any further, but would like to have a wash and brush up and then have something to eat. And so then they proceed to like, you know, bring in the intelligence people, likely Jews, and start doing the showing them pictures of of camps routine. So this is kind of so it's like here's the play by play. It's like you you go through you land, you want to surrender the Americans because you don't want to surrender the Soviets, obviously. And you assume the Americans will be somewhat honorable. And by the way, the, in his experience, the British were much had much uh, more mutual respect than the Americans. And they steal everything you have, including your prosthetic leg, uh, to like I don't know, sell as a souvenir or something to buy a you know, booze with. And then they start uh, proselytizing to you about the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they must have used different language because that term didn't come about until the 70s. But yes, the no, photographs yeah, were... I mean, a lot of those photographs were given to them by the Soviets, too. I mean, it was propaganda. Of course. Uh, in fact, so I can read his account of that. Early in the morning, I receive a message that I'm come to the HQ of the 9th American Air Army. I refuse until all my pilfered belongings have been returned to me. After much persuasion, in which I am told that the matter is very urgent and that I can rely on getting my things back as soon as the thief has been caught, I set off with Nehrman at Air Army HQ. We are first interrogated by three general staff officers. They begin showing us some photographs, which they claim to have been taken of atrocities in concentration camps. As we have been fighting for such abominations, they argue... We also share the guilt. They refuse to believe me when I tell them that I have never even seen a concentration camp. I add that if excesses had been committed, they are regrettable and reprehensible, and the real culprit should be punished. I point out that such cruelties have been perpetrated not only by our people, but by all peoples in every age. I remind them of the Boer War. Therefore, these excesses must be judged by the same criterion. I cannot imagine that the mounds of corpses depicted in the photographs were taken in concentration camps. I tell them that we have seen such sites not on paper, but in fact, after the air attacks in Dresden and Hamburg and other cities, when allied four-engine bombers deluged them indiscriminately with phosphorus and high-explosive bombs and countless women and children were massacred. And I assure these gentlemen that if they are especially interested in atrocities, they will find abundant material and living material at that among their eastern allies. If I can give some uh, logos to Nick's very good reading with uh, Pathos, the, the numbers I have on this uh, about the German air raid deaths uh, are literally like an order of magnitude more than the British suffered. Uh, so they lost about half a million. If you, you know, if you ask other sources, it's probably higher than that. But conservatively speaking, the Germans lost uh, half a million civilians to air raids. Uh, the British lost 60,000 roughly. And from actually just my own experience, I'm not speaking for everyone, obviously, but I, I remember watching a lot of World War II documentaries uh, growing up, just being fascinated with all of it. And I remember the the constant narrative of the blitz, uh, the, the, the German air raids over London being kind of this horrific act. And they would never explain that the Allied air raids were going on. And actually, the blitz was somewhat of a response to those because the uh, I think I think the Germans were not doing that until uh, something on the order of Dresden happened because they got so pissed off that they they were they were trying to take it back to to Churchill. But the, the number of deaths are about 10 times as much on the German side. Yet the narrative is that the uh, the British were suffering more. 
It's just not true. Yeah, and here's his experiences by the end of the war when they're fighting over Germany. He says, it's a dreadful thing to be flying and fighting above our homes, the more so when one sees what masses of men and material are pouring into our country like a flood. We are no more than a boulder, a small obstruction, but unable to stem the tide. The devil is now gambling for Germany, for all Europe. Invaluable forces are bleeding to death. The last bastion of the world is crumbling under the assault of Red Asia. Of an evening, we are more exhausted by this realization than by the incessant operations of the day. Stubborn refusals to accept this fate and the determination that this must not happen keeps us going. I would not like to have to reproach myself for having failed to do everything within my power till the 11th hour to stave off the appalling, menacing specter of defeat. I know that every decent young German thinks as I do. It it is really remarkable, too. I, that's the other thing, too, is the American, uh, you know, the average American watches these. I think the hardest obstacle for the American, the ignorant American to to leap over when it comes to trying to at least begin to understand this war is that the war was in the East, but all the movies they watch are all set in, you know, France or something. And they don't really understand the true nature of the war because nobody makes movies about the war in the East. Nobody. Except the Russians. Well, you know, Enemy at the Gates was one of the movies that I actually did uh, go to the theater for. And this was obviously years ago, came out after 9-11, probably 2002 or three or something like that, when a lot of war movies were getting underwritten because of the the stuff that was going on politically in, uh, in America at the time, very much about, uh, I remember the shift actually too. It was like the 90s was like, you know, uh, it's the economy stupid, you know, foreign policy doesn't matter. And then 9-11 was all about, you know, war, war, war. And so a lot of movies were being made with that theme. And Enemy at the Gates was about Stalingrad. And that was uniquely about the Germans and the Soviets and it had nothing to do with America. And as an American, I found that very interesting. Yeah, but you do have your English-speaking uh, plucky Russian ally played by Jude Law. Um, Jude Law and then the other guy uh, who was... Ed, Har- Ed Harris plays the... No, 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 no. no. The, uh, the, the, the very Jewish uh, comrade of his on the Soviet oh. side. Don't remember his yeah, name, but yeah. I remember him wearing glasses and being very jealous of Jude Law, I think. And then, um, yes, Ed Harris was was from the, the German side. Well, this is the problem. I mean, you mentioned that, I mean, the Cold War began right away. And America's always had, a, the American propaganda apparatus has always had trouble with that when it comes to putting it into, you know, fictional um, propaganda, you know, film form. It's like, well... The Russians are the allies, but once the Cold War is going, it's like you can't make movies that are too kindly to that fact, right? So they've always kind of, that's, I think, really the explanation, too, for the just the focus on the Western French. Just, like, pretend the Russian, the USSR didn't exist and the Americans won the Second World War because, uh, you know, you got to save the Jews or something. Like, that's basically... There's too many too many revisions had, had to have taken place there. Yeah. And in fact, let's talk about Stalingrad real brief because he has an interesting depiction of Stalingrad, uh, which he's seeing from the air. But it's uh, the next day we fly a sortie over Stalingrad, where approximately two thirds of the city is in German hands. It is true the Soviets hold only one third, but this third is being defended with an almost religious fanaticism. Stalingrad is Stalin's city, 
and Stalin is the god of these young Kyrgyzes, Uzbeks, Tartars, Turkmenians, and other Mongols. They are hanging on like grim death to every scrap of rubble. They lurk behind every remnant of a wall. For their Stalin, they are a guard of fire-breathing war beasts. And when the beasts falter, well-aimed revolver shots from their political commissars nail them, in one way or the other, to the ground they are defending. These Asiatic pupils of integral communism and the political commissars standing at their backs are destined to force Germany and the whole world with her to abandon the comfortable belief that communism is a political creed like so many others. Instead, they are to prove to us first and finally to all nations that they are the disciples of a new gospel. And so Stalingrad is to become the Bethlehem of our century, but a Bethlehem of war, hatred, annihilation, and destruction. Pretty good author for, you know, like a jock, a fighter jock, literally. Yeah, that's basically what he was, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He didn't actually, I mean, he, he had a superior education to what, you know, Americans get. I mean, he studied the classics. and But he, he wasn't really a great student. He cared about sports, and he was, like, always pranking his teachers. His, his family, actually, his mother writes an introduction to his book where she says as much. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, another curious fact I should mention about him that I just like, it's just, there's also little bits of comedy and this is not in his book, but it's just something that I thought was funny. He was married three times. Okay. Yeah. And, and they're all named Ursula. Yes. Yes. What the yeah, hell? They're all named Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> You caught that too, okay. I I was like, wait a minute. Wait, did I read that wrong? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was married to Ursula. Weird. Three of them. Maybe he just didn't want to like tell people like and have them forget the new new wife's name or something. Yeah, it makes it easy. I mean, I I could stand to benefit from something like that in my life actually. It's like yeah, why do you have like, to change up the, the names? The, the girls the same. Don't want to say the I mean they're all the same name. at the end anyway. So <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's another topic. Yeah. Yeah, that's another show. <laughs> oh man, um, I don't have a lot more to say. I it's, I would say it's you know it's basically you read his memoir. It's kind of like chicken soup for the fascist soul. You might say it, it is a really inspirational story. He's an inspirational man, and it's not something you read for. You know, it, it's not a political work. It's it's just a simple memoir of a of a God among men. And in that context, I mean, it's enjoyable to read. I, I recommend reading it. It's, you're not going to see the film adaptation anytime soon. So, yeah. And, and just to uh, actually uh, clarify some of the things I was saying before about the attrition rates in the air, uh, it's actually worse than, uh, than I was originally estimating. Uh, so the Luftwaffe during the war at its height, had about 3 million total staff. That includes paratroopers, anti-aircraft, as I mentioned, and logistics. Uh, of that, there were 600,000 in the air, being air crews, not all pilots. You know, sometimes they're gunners, sometimes they're you know, staff on a, a cargo plane. Who knows? But uh, pilots are much uh, fewer than that. But of the air crew, 97,000 were killed, or about one-sixth of the total that were actually flying. So for this guy to fly over 2,000 missions and to survive, given those odds, and be as successful as he was, he's really, as Nick says, a uh, an ubermensch. And I guess I'll leave... He was also, by the way, 
a great skier and he skied after the war with his prosthetic leg. He uh, did so, and not only skied, but did some mountain climbing too. And, and, uh, South America. And I guess we'll leave with his, we'll leave on an optimistic note uh, this time. We'll give you his motto and we'll sign off with that till next week. His f- motto that he would uh, always say to himself and believed and lived through his actions was that only he who gives up on himself is lost. Stukas.